uh, with Bibles, and if you just wave and get their attention, they'll put one into your hands, and it'll be marked to our passage this evening for your convenience. And then, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot, not salmon, Salmon. Getting hungry. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, speaking of Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shethiel, and Shethiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot uh, Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot, begot uh, Achim, Achim begot Eliaud, Eliaud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Methan, Methan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born, uh, to, to of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ were 14 generations. And the reason that the genealogy is broke up in groups of 14 was for the sake of the Jews and for the sake of memorization. Actually, they memorized genealogies like this. And uh, so broken up in 14 uh, three sections of 14 for the sake of memorization. Now, this is a very, very interesting way to begin a book, to begin it with a genealogy. And, uh, uh, and, and all of these names and, and all that are being laid out, when you read any book on sermon preparation or public speaking or something like this, they'll, they'll talk about beginning a sermon with uh, maybe a joke if you're a stranger to a congregation in order to kind of build some kind of a camaraderie uh, between you and the audience. If you're producing a, uh, if you're going to deliver a sermon, the idea is that you would uh, bring something out of life, some kind of an illustration that immediately grabs the attention of the people and makes them eager then to hear the rest of the sermon. That's what that introduction to any sermon is intended to be. So I've read all of the books, but obviously I don't do them, in case you're wondering. So that's the way things are for us. And so you would never, ever begin anything in which you hope to hold the attention of the people 
with the genealogy and the current culture. And so if you are the kind of person that you've looked at or you've apologized for the Bible, for its genealogies, and you look at it and say, listen, I know there's a lot of genealogies there. Just skip those and then get to the good stuff. Or you think a genealogy is a terrible way to, to bring the book. Just say to yourself right now, you're such a Gentile. Just say that to yourself. You are such a Gentile. The purpose of the book of Matthew is very, very interesting. And the perfect purpose of this gospel of Matthew is given in the very first sentence of verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Each of the four gospels are written for a different purpose. And each of them are an account of the life and the ministry of Jesus and his ascension ultimately into heaven. But they all look at Jesus from a little different angle. That's why when you read the Gospels and you see sometimes one book Gospel emphasizes Jesus from a little different angle, somebody else emphasizes or underemphasizes something else and you wonder about it, the reason is is the intent, uh, the purpose behind the gospel is different for each one of them. When Matthew writes his gospel by the Spirit of God, it is in order to prove to the Jews, to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah that was prophesied of in the Scriptures. And you could have no hope of convincing the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the world, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, unless at the very start you can show them that he is a descendant in the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, further of the tribe of Judah, and then through the bloodline of David. There would be no sense talking about his fulfillment of all of the other prophecies that Matthew is going to speak about If you can't begin there, there was no greater way to arrest the attention of a Jewish audience than to begin by saying, this one that I claim to you to be the Messiah of the world, the promised Jewish Messiah, is such as a starting point because he matches the prophecies concerning his bloodline and the patriarchs of Israel and David himself. And so that's why when you read the book of Matthew and you see him quoting all over and over again some incident concerning Jesus' life and his ministry, and then it says that it might be fulfilled by that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, or that might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Micah, or whoever the prophet's being quoted by, because his purpose is to show a Jewish audience that's supremely, it speaks to all of us, but supremely to convince them of the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah, not because Matthew believed it, uh, but because the Scriptures testified to it. Even the Apostle Paul, what a great mind he had, what a great, um, incredible uh, depth in the Scriptures that he had, what a tremendous testimony that he had. When he began his missionary journeys and he went into these various synagogues and he preached Christ, it says that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Paul didn't want a single person to believe in Christ as the Messiah because he believed in Jesus as the Messiah. He wanted their faith to be based in the most solid thing in the whole world, and that is 
based upon the Word of God. And so uh, this is the emphasis of, of uh, Matthew in his, uh, in his gospel. And so he's uh, bringing up these, these references all of the time, all of these quotations from the Old Testament to show that Jesus was the promised uh, Messiah. Mark's gospel is a little bit different than Matthew, and Mark's gospel presents Jesus as a servant. So it's like those of you who have ADD or whatever, I say it affectionately, you're going to love the uh, gospel of Mark most because it's like an action film. It's, it's, it's much lighter on teaching, the teaching of Jesus, and much ha- heavier in his miracles, in his doing. So if you take, not right now, but you can do it now, but later on, and you just thumb your way through the gospel according to Matthew, you see red, 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 if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, and you see so much red in the gospel according to Matthew, and then you get into Mark's gospel, and comparatively speaking, it's far less. Why? Because Jesus is being presented as a servant, and a servant is a doer. He's not supremely a teacher. And so that's the emphasis that's being made. So in Mark's gospel, you don't have the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have the Olivet Discourse. You don't have so many of the parables that are contained in the book of Matthew. Then you go into Luke, which emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, and then into the Gospel of John, which emphasizes his deity. All of them complementary. They're not contradictory with one another. They're all intended to show us a different side of our Savior and to increase our appreciation of him and our understanding of him as a result. One of the interesting things about this genealogy that is uh, laid out here is that within this genealogy there is a mention of four different women that are listed there. It's very, very highly unusual in the ancient world to mention women within a genealogy. Who cared about women? the ancient world. I'm not saying about it. I mean, it was just the way that it was, a very patriarchal society. Women were respected, but in those days at the time in which this was written, a woman's testimony wasn't even considered valid in a court of law. And the fascinating thing about our culture, Western culture, that has been fashioned and formed by the Bible, by a Judeo-Christian ethic, no matter how far Western culture moves away from it, but the privileges of women within a Western culture, the way that they are viewed, the opportunities that they have, how far they've been able to rise so quickly, speaking relatively related to history, is owed to the Bible and how Christ caused the world to see everybody, including women. Now, the sad thing about all of that today is we see women, not all women, maybe not even the majority of women, but I would say the majority of women in Western culture have taken privileges and opportunities that have come to them and they don't even know that they've been brought into Western civilization and culture by Christ and then now having attained to this position of equality now, now using then those positions to then bury Christianity or to oppose Christianity or oppose the teaching of the Word of God, abortion, other things like this. So it's kind of weird to have a sex that owes so much to Christ, then get to this place and then turn their back on the one 
that allows them at the core, at the foundation, to have the blessings that are yours. And the same thing is true as it relates to men as well. But we're talking about women who are being mentioned in this genealogy. Highly unusual to mention any women, even the best of women, in a genealogy in the ancient world. And the women who are mentioned in this genealogy of Jesus, very, very interesting indeed. There's uh, Tamar who's mentioned in verse 3. And uh, she's the one that posed as a prostitute and had sexual intercourse with her father-in-law. And uh, in uh, Judah there in Genesis chapter 38, Rahab is mentioned in verse 5, a former prostitute from Jericho that came to faith in the Lord. Then in verse 5, Ruth the Moabitess is mentioned. She's a member as a Moabitess of an entire nation that is the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. And yet she's mentioned in the genealogy as well as Bathsheba in verse 6 and, and associated with the darkest season in the life of King David. And so you say, wouldn't you want to, like, get some blue bloods into this whole thing if you're going to have some bragging rights, find some women who have a little better character at least before they came to know the Lord and, and all related to this, though uh, very, very godly, some of them in, in terms of, uh, of, of their lives and all. So why would God uh, include women here that come from this kind of a sordid background so much, or if not in their life, then historically related to their gene pool? And I think that it's in here in order to communicate the willingness of God to identify with sinners and to identify with anyone. When I mention Rahab or I mention uh, Ruth or uh, uh, um, any of these, uh, Tamar or any of them, I'm certainly not throwing stones at them. I marvel every day that Christ is willing to identify himself with me, knowing what I know about me. And him knowing what he knows about me. And it's a wonderful testimony of the family. Sometimes people say, now, are you a Christian? Sometimes a Christian can hem and haw. Oh, boy, I don't know. (laughs) Yes, I'm a Christian. The marvel is, is that God would allow me to use that term to identify myself with him. But it speaks of the greatness of the grace of God, no matter how what the sins of our past or no matter how dark our background might be, that God will forgive us. He makes us a part of his family. And then he allows us to then identify ourselves forever with uh, him in calling ourselves Christians. And so it's just amazing. This genealogy that is given here in Matthew's gospel is Joseph's genealogy. In Luke's gospel, we have Mary's genealogy. You say, well, what in the world? Why would you include in the Bible Luke? I mean, uh, uh, Joseph's genealogy. He's not the biological father of Jesus. And so why put it in the scriptures? Why not just Luke's genealogy of Mary? I mean, she is, she is the blood. He came right from her body. This genealogy in Matthew is Jesus' legal genealogy, and that was important to the Jews. By virtue of the fact that Joseph ultimately married Mary, because of that marriage, Jesus then took on, from the legal perspective of the Jew, he took on the genealogy of his father, even though his father was a stepfather. So here we have the, the um, 
uh, legal uh, uh, genealogy related to Joseph and and why it's significant to have Joseph's genealogy in here is it's only because of Joseph's genealogy and talking about Jesus's uh, legal genealogy here that allows him to have the claim as the king of Israel. Uh, because there is a, within the, the genealogy of Mary, there is within that bloodline, even though Jesus comes through that bloodline and fulfills prophecies in coming through her bloodline, it is because of the fact that he is a part of this genealogy here that he has a right to be, claim to be the Christ and the King of Israel. It's just the way that the Jews work with their genealogy. So again, very significant in the Jewish Mind. So we pick things up now in uh, verse 18, the record of Jesus' birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together and uh, had sexual relationships in their marriage, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. A betrothal in the ancient world, when you were betrothed to someone else, it was kind of like our engagement in this culture, though our culture has so fallen so greatly morally that it's very hard to find a comparison. But in terms of a commitment between two people, that was the closest, we have the, that's the closest thing we have to a betrothal. When two Jews would be betrothed in the ancient world, it was kind of like an engagement where they would be married, where they were technically kind of legally married. That was the level of the commitment they were making to one another. It took a writing of divorcement to break a betrothal. But for that period of the betrothal, which was typically a year more or less, you would not live together. You certainly would not have a sexual relationship with one another until the end of that betrothal period, you would be formally married, and then you would begin a sexual relationship as a part of like any marriage. And so they're in this betrothal period. Joseph knows he hasn't had intimate relationships with Mary. She knows the same thing, and yet she comes up pregnant. How does she come up pregnant? As a miracle of the Holy Spirit in her life. And so here she is. This miracle occurs within her life. Obviously, this creates a problem for Joseph because here is the woman that he loves, and what a gal Mary was. I mean, she's probably no older than 16 years old, and they married them quite early in those days, somewhere after 14 or so, right in that range. She's no older than 16. But then you read about when uh, later on in Luke's gospel, when the angel of the Lord comes, speaks to her about uh, these things, and then she goes to Elizabeth, her cousin, and she begins to praise the Lord. And you look at this song, the Magnificent, that comes out of her heart, and you realize, wow, this is one amazing sister in the Lord. And really she is. So she's quite, Joseph's got to be thinking, I am getting to marry the most amazing person. And all of a sudden, she turns up pregnant. And so it means that in his mind, she has either been unfaithful to him, which is unthinkable to him. I mean, it would be like like throwing a rock in a pond. His heart has to just sink to the bottom. This can't be true. This news can't be true. So this hits him like a ton of bricks. And then his reputation now becomes uh, besmirched by all of this. Because who else is she most likely to become pregnant by except by Joseph? 
So here she is pregnant, and now not only is her reputation kind of in the mud, so to speak, but his is as well. So this creates a real dilemma for Joseph. And he's a, he's a very, very commendable man as we see him here. And as he's described here, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he didn't want to make a public example of, of Mary. So obviously she's been unfaithful to him. He could have taken her to a public court of law, shamed her openly, made his innocence very, very well known as a result of the trial and the the public divorce proceeding and all. But he doesn't want to do that. He's been hurt. I mean, he's been hurt. He does not understand yet what's happened here. We understand the virgin birth today. This is growing on Joseph 2,000 years ago. And so he doesn't want to do this to publicly humiliate Mary, even though he doesn't want to marry her any longer. He wants to give her kind of a secret divorce, and uh, so he was minded to put her away secretly. This is the turning of heart of a very noble man, a very other-centered kind of, of a man. And so this was the trial that he was in the midst of. But while he thought about these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your, uh, to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he probably needed a revelation from God in order to believe that. And he, and he got a revelation from God that this was, here's God's explanation for what's really going on here. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name. Notice Mary's, not Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so here is the angel of the Lord coming here to uh, Joseph, instructs him to take Mary as his wife, and then reveals the child's sex. It's going to be a boy. It's not going to be a girl. You are to name him Jesus. And, uh, and what his mission is, he has come into the world to save his people from their sins. In other words, Joseph, you're in the middle of something very, very special. Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. So every time we mention the name of Jesus, we are reminding ourselves and the whole world of the purpose that he came into the world. And the purpose that he came into was to provide the world with God's salvation. And there is no other salvation than God's salvation. And so his name means uh, Jehovah is salvation. And then as is characteristic of Matthew in verse 22, he ties this back again, speaking of a biblical faith case uh, uh, for a, a place for building your faith upon Christ. For so this was, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Very interesting. We've just come out of the book of Isaiah, that fifth gospel there. He gives this as an evidence for the fact that Jesus was born uh, and, and uh, as a son. He was born of a virgin. He was born Emmanuel, that is divine, just as Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would be. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife, 
So he immediately married uh, Mary and immediately obeying. And as a result of this marriage, he became Jesus's legal father, not his biological father, but his legal father from the perspective of the Jews. And he did not know her, that is, no sexual relationships with her until uh, she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. And so the passage makes very clear here that, uh, again, they married uh, and, and then for the term of her, of her pregnancy, no sexual intercourse uh, between them until Jesus was born and then they assumed uh, marital relationships uh, as uh, you know, would be normal in a marriage. And the Bible records, we'll see it a little bit later in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus, when he comes into uh, Nazareth and he begins to preach to them, everybody's kind of wowed by his sermons and his claims to, uh, uh, to concerning himself. And they ask themselves, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all of these things? In other words, Jesus had many, many half-brothers and sisters. Joseph and Mary had many children after he was uh, born. And so the teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary, not supported at all. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, there's a couple of other sections of Christianity that uh, believe that, but it's not supported at all uh, by the Bible. And I assume that this kind of doctrine of Roman Catholicism in terms of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life, is, is, was invented by them in an attempt to venerate Mary. But there isn't really any need to do something artificial to cause us to respect Mary any more than we already respect her. Listen, God the Father chose one woman in human history to bring his Savior into the world through. That's, if that's on your resume, you got my respect. He didn't even bother with men. He went to women, the greater sex. But then even among women, blessed art thou among women, he chooses Mary There's nothing additional that we have to do to be impressed uh, by her and, again, to be impressed by her spirituality as it's revealed to us all the way uh, through through the Scriptures. And so, uh, as the angel of the Lord spoke to her in uh, Luke chapter 1, having come into her, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. does not say that Mary is blessed above women, that she is blessed among women, as wonderful as she is, and she is wonderful. She was still a sinner, as much in need of a Savior as any other woman who's been born or any other human being that uh, has been born. And so Joseph here takes and uh, then names, he's obedient all the way through to the instruction of the angels, including calling Jesus' name uh, Jesus, as was uh, 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 indicated for him to do. 
I think it's interesting to just stop for a moment and think about the virgin birth because there's so many people that look at the thing and they say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus as a historical figure and I believe that he was a great teacher and I believe that he was a great miracle worker and I believe that he was a great example and, and a great model for mankind. But, you know, you get into that kind of miracle stuff and, you, and it all starts with his virgin birth and, you know, I just can't accept the fact of, of the virgin birth and so I want to believe all of these other things about him but I'm not going to believe in the virgin birth. And there's a lot of people that are in that category. Even those that profess to know Christ. I don't know how you can know Christ and not believe in uh, the virgin birth. The virgin birth is very, very significant because Jesus was not born of two human parents. He was born as a result of a miracle of the Holy Spirit in Mary. Jesus was, as the Bible teaches, fully God on the Holy Spirit side and fully man in terms of Mary, fully God, fully man, all at the same time. And it is because Jesus was born of a virgin and because Jesus is divine that he is also sinless. And the sinlessness of Jesus is very essential to our salvation because a sinner cannot be the savior of sinners. He would need a savior himself in the same way that a drowning person can't save another drowning person. It was Jesus' sinlessness by virtue of the virgin birth that qualified Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb without spot and without blemish as the Bible describes Him. And so again, some people don't like that claim. They reject Him on the basis of that. They even reject Christianity on the basis of the virgin birth. But if you take away the virgin birth, then you are left with a Savior who cannot save. You are left with a Savior who must be saved himself. I remember when I was a kid, there was some kind of a commercial on television, and it was like something happened, and it's very unbiblical, by the way, brace yourself. Um, but it was like some kind of a voice came on and said, it's not nice to play with Mother Nature. Some, some of you might remember that. I don't know what the commercial was, was for. But I always think about that related to this in the attempts of human beings to redefine Christ according to their wisdom and their ideas. Oh, no, I can't believe the description of Jesus as is described in the Bible. I think this and I think that and I think this other thing and I say to myself or I can ask them, have you ever read the Bible once? No, 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 but I'm something of authority on it. And I think to myself, it's not nice to tinker with the Messiah. It's not nice to tinker with the Bible. And all of these things that people want to change about the Bible and change about God and change about Christ would leave us with no hope, no Bible, no Savior, no salvation. They don't know what they're talking about. It's like, leave Him alone until the day you need Him, and then you need to put your faith in Him, and you'll be glad that, it, that the Savior that is before you is the one that is in the Bible and not the one you would have created Him in, in our folly before we come to know Christ. And so... The uh, beauty of the, the everything about Christ, including the importance of his uh, virgin birth. Chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, 
In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And so they came from the east and probably traveled a distance of hundreds of miles across the very, very arid part of the world. And they came to Jerusalem, as uh, in verse 2, by following a star that had been supernaturally put before their eyes. And they recognized we need to follow this star because this star is going to take us someplace important or to someone important. And so they come then, these wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem saying, uh, asking the question of the city, where is he who was born king of the Jews, uh, has been born king of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now these men are known as magi. In the land that they came from, somewhere in Babylonia, somewhere, these were the kind of the magicians when you read in Daniel's uh, uh, prophecy or elsewhere in the Old Testament where the kings would bring forth their magicians and their sorcerers and their soothsayers in order to give them wisdom because of some battle they were facing or some major decision. These were the guys that they would bring forward. These guys, they studied the stars. They were part astrologer and part astrology, uh, astronomers. And so they were part serious, part not. I mean, they were serious in their own mind of trying to tell the future related to the stars. They would cut open livers and do all kinds of things to try and discern wisdom from God and direction from God. But their main deal was the study of the stars. And so somehow, and they're looking at the stars, they see a star that's unusual to them. We don't know how God got their attention with the star. We don't know much about the star, except that somehow they knew, and by what revelation God gave them, we don't know, that this star is special. And this star has come from the God of the stars, the God of creation, And he is going to lead us to the king of the Jews. And somehow they knew that that was significant. So they followed that star, and it brought them all the way to Jerusalem, which is just a stone's throw, a little bit more, but not much more, a stone's throw away from Bethlehem. And so they come into the city in the search for Jesus. Now, what is so fascinating to me, because you look at this, and so here we are in Matthew's gospel, and we're reading about the Magi. And you go into the other gospels, and there's no mention of the Magi or the wise men or anything, and you ask yourself, you know, those gospels don't seem to be heard at all for the lack of this account concerning the Magi. Why would God put an account concerning the Magi in in this uh, gospel according uh, to Matthew here? And one of the reasons is is to look at how it is that God brought these men. I mean, they're, they are hundreds of miles away from Judaism, hundreds of miles away from Bethlehem, steeped in paganism. I mean, these, these people would be considered a cult today in terms of what they were doing. They're the kind of people that own these buildings on the side of the highway that you can go in and get your fortune done. This is the ilk of whom they come from, though in that culture they were highly regarded. And so why in the world would this be included within the, the Gospels except for God to communicate to us 
what we already know in all of our lives as Christians, and that is that God meets us wherever we are in life. And he builds a bridge on the basis of that to then lead us to Christ. And you look at your testimony. He used this dumb game called basketball to lead me to his feet. I started to go to church at the very beginning because I was empty and I, want, and I knew life was empty. I knew there was no purpose apart from Christ. But when, when I was working for the phone company, we had a city league team in the A League and we were winning the championship course we had. And, and so it related to that, looking anywhere we could find a game. And then I heard that, you know, Calvary Chapel had some pretty good basketball players at it. And, uh, and that there, and this was another game a week because they had a church league. So I start going to Calvary Chapel. I get on the team and then the Lord uses it as a part of, to hook me into it. We won the championship, by the way, in, in the church league, which in lots of times it means nothing depending on the caliber of the athletes within the churches in the community. We did happen to have a guy by the name of Neil Traub on our team who was one of the later cuts of the Golden State Warriors when he came out of college. That kind of helped having a guy like 6'10 in the center in a church league. That would help you if you were playing semi-pro ball, by the way. But he meets us someplace where we're given our whole life to this craziness or this interest or this whatever, and then somehow a star arises out of it, and then he leads us to Christ as a result of it. And it's a part of every person's testimony that no one is so far away from God geographically, growing up in the most remote parts of the world with no contact with Christianity, growing up in the worst paganism of Islam or Hinduism or whatever it might be, and steeped in all of this, and God is able to break through all of it in a miracle and lead a person to Christ and to believe it about the Holy Spirit that he is endeavoring to do so. There is a star involved in every human life, whether they will choose to follow it to Christ. That's another question. That's an individual decision that people make. But every single day, the Holy Spirit is endeavoring to draw people to the worship of Jesus Christ. And here they are, this wonderful witness of this fact. And this great fact is a part of the testimony of so many of us in this room uh, today. Uh, Not necessarily uh, me per se. Um, I had a little bit of a Christian heritage growing up, so I wasn't steeped in in pure paganism uh, and that kind of thing. But God is able to overcome all of it. And the testimonies given concerning Christ and faith in Christ, these miracles that are happening all over the world, happening, uh, you know, just as they did 2,000 years ago. Well, when they came in and they asked this question in Jerusalem, when Herod the king... This is Herod the Great, paranoid guy. Uh, If he got paranoid about you, you were dead. Uh, It didn't matter if you were his wife or his son, he would just kill you. And power was everything to him. The old saying concerning Herod was that it was safer to be his pig than to be his wife because he considered himself to be the king of the Jews, so he didn't eat pork, but he thought nothing is the king of the Jews of killing his wife or killing his sons in order to hold on to his power. 
And so it was this hair, very, very paranoid uh, kind of leader. He hears them coming in, asking about the king of the Jews, and he thinks to himself, hey, I thought I was the king of the Jews. So he immediately feels threatened by all of this. And not only was he troubled, but all of Jerusalem with him. Now, we think about the Magi, and we always think that there were three of them, three wise men, because of the three gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the the myrrh. And probably because when they make the nativity scenes, you know, they only want to put three of them on there. You know, olive wood is getting expensive. Those sets are very expensive in Jerusalem today than they were 25 years ago. But we tend to think, all kidding aside, we tend to think that it was like these three guys coming in on three camels, and they had like an overnight pack, and uh, it's kind of a camel pack too for just water across it, so traveling real light. They probably didn't. There might have been many, many magi. For sure, they're traveling with their family, with servants, with an entire entourage, all kinds of food and camels and supplies and all of this. So when they came into Jerusalem, it was like the circus came into town. It got everybody's attention. And then they asked the question and indicating that they're on a search for the Messiah in their understanding, the king of the Jews who had already been born. That much they understood, which was more than the Jewish religious leaders uh, understood. And so Herod troubled, verse 4, and so he gathered all of the chief priests and the scribes of all of the people together and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But to you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, uh, are you are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so again, here is uh, Matthew quoting from the Old Testament, and here are the religious leaders saying to this political leader, this king, Herod, you want to know where the Scriptures say that he's supposed to be born? He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then Herod, when he had certain uh, secretly called the wise men... Well, before we get into that... So here comes these wise men with all of this entourage into Jerusalem, seeking for the king of the Jews that they claim is already born, and they're looking for him. The Jewish religious leaders then declare to them and to Herod that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Before they now make their way to Bethlehem, Herod has a request of them. But if the presence of the Magi is weird in all of this, the reaction of the Jewish religious leaders is even crazier. They tell Herod he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and then the pagans go to Bethlehem to discover the birth of the Messiah, and the Jewish religious leaders won't walk five miles to discover whether it's true or not. You're fired! All of you, you're fired. Get out. I'm doing my Donald Trump. Never seen the show, but it sounded really good. What kind of Jewish religious leaders are these? I mean, they're just completely lost in their heads with all of their knowledge. These guys, pagans, are traveling hundreds of miles, eager to learn of the the birth of the Messiah. They won't even bother skipping lunch to walk over there and discover it to be true or not for themselves. Awful condition of Judaism at the time. 
that Jesus was born into the world. So Herod gets these magi together, these wise men, and he secretly called them and he determined from them uh, what time the star began to appear. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you've found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Out and out lie. His intention, as we see, is, is to uh, murder uh, Jesus as soon as he can identify which baby that was born recently in Bethlehem uh, is this baby that you're talking about in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And so when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east, it went before them till they came, and they stood over, uh, over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house... They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. They did not worship Joseph. And significantly, they did not worship Mary. And Mary did not have a problem with it. They worshipped Jesus in this uh, scene. And here he is. This, they've made this journey of hundreds of miles now. Jesus the only one that's worthy of our worship. And when they had opened up their treasures, uh, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, Jesus is a little bit older. This is some period of time, somewhere, somewhere up to two years after Jesus' birth that this event occurs because Jesus is described here uh, in this passage as being a young child. You notice when they saw the young child. And then you notice further in verse 11, when they came into the house. Jesus is no longer in some kind of a barn or uh, lean-to in which he was born and in Bethlehem. He is in a house and, and he is now a child. He's no longer an infant uh, at all. So some period of time when Herod orders the, the execution of all children two years and under, uh, he's playing it safe. He, he looks and says, all right, the child is not an infant. He could be as old as two years. And so he orders the death of all of the children uh, all the way down to that age. Also significant in realizing that this happened sometime after his birth, again, as much as two years after his birth, is that when Joseph and Mary dedicated Jesus at the temple, if you had enough money, you would buy a lamb, and then he would be dedicated by virtue of a sacrifice of a lamb. But the law of Moses allowed, if you were extraordinarily poor, to have that dedication service by the offering of two turtle doves. That was something that a poor person could afford. When they dedicated Jesus at the temple, they offered the sacrifice of poor people, and that was the two turtle doves. If, that's, if that dedication of Jesus had occurred after the visit of the Magi and the gifts that they brought, they would have been readily able to buy a lamb and offer a sacrifice that was something greater than the sacrifice of the poor. So there's a period of time that, that, has, uh, 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 that has elapsed here between his birth and uh, this visit. And so they come to him, and when they had opened up their treasures, they presented gifts to Jesus. This was an expression of their worship to him. 
And the gifts that they brought to him were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these are very significant gifts given to Jesus. Gold was a gift that was a gift for a king, and it spoke of uh, Jesus' deity. It spoke of the fact that he was the king of the Jews, and they had come fully expecting to find a king. What gift do you bring him? And in an outburger, you don't bring that to a king. You want to save your head, you bring gold. They also brought frankincense, and frankincense heavily associated in the law of Moses with uh, the, the functions of the priest. And so it was acknowledging Jesus not only come into the world as uh, the king of the world, but also as the world's high priest also brought him myrrh. Myrrh was heavily associated with death in those days. It was one of the spices that you used to embalm people. So this gift, an odd kind of gift to bring to him, testified to the fact that this Messiah would come into the world not only as king, not only as priest, but that he would also die a death in order to provide mankind with the forgiveness of, his, uh, of our sins. And so the beauty of the gifts that were brought uh, to Jesus, the beauty of the heart that was expressed uh, behind all of it, and then being divinely warned in a dream while they were there that they should not return to Herod and identify Jesus as the child, they departed for their own country another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring word to you, for Herod is going to seek the young child to destroy him. Herod's an evil man. The world has been filled throughout history. It's only an evil human being that would attempt to uh, kill Jesus or attempt to kill him within a culture or kill him in the hearts of, of even an individual person. And so, Here's this recognition that there's going to be an attempt made upon his life by Herod. And then the Lord communicates by an angel to Joseph to then flee to Egypt. Now, this is fascinating here in verse 13. Because who does the Lord speak to concerning this revelation? He gives it to Joseph. Not to Mary. Not to Mary. Again, Mary, blessed among women, not putting her down. But even though she is the mother of Jesus, the vehicle of this great miracle in human history, then when it comes time for God to speak to the family and to lead the family, He goes to the husband. He does not violate the authority structure of the home, even in the case of of a home, a Christian home, in which Mary is the wife and Mary is the mother. Jesus always works to reinforce the authority structure of the home, and that is the husband is the head of the home, and that is his responsibility to hear God and to lead his family. And so the Lord goes to Joseph And even though he is the stepfather, even though he is in this particular position, he is the legal uh, one over Jesus. He is his father in that household, so to speak, his stepfather. And so the revelation comes to him. It doesn't mean that God can't speak to wives, doesn't speak to wives. He does that all of the time. But 
Ultimately, what he always wants to do is he always wants to speak to the husband first and foremost and, and then uh, to receive what the wife has to say as confirmation. Sometimes the wife will hear the Lord first and then express her opinions and her ideas related to the family, to the husband. He then takes that to the Lord. But here is this recognition and the honoring of the authority structure of the home. And, and uh, it's, it's fascinating that, that he does that, even in as remarkable a family unit as this uh, particular family uh, is. And so uh, the warning is given, and then when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, immediately obedient, and there was until the death, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he was delivered by the, uh, deceived rather, by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. You can imagine. I would have hated being one of his wives or children in all of this, and he's going to meet his anger out upon uh, Bethlehem, unfortunately. So he was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and he put to death all of the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts and even the surrounding kind of suburbs of Bethlehem, so to speak, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And then, uh, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And so this horrible, evil, evil act done uh, by Herod in the killing uh, of the children there within, uh, within the city. And... Uh, you know, it, it isn't to minimize the horror at all of what it is that that he did there in that uh, in that massacre. But we should never think in our minds at all that he killed hundreds and hundreds of children. Uh, commentators and historians estimate, given the size of the city, etc., it was somewhere between 25 and 30 children. A monster, indefensible. I'm not defending him, but to give us a sense of. Uh, the scope of what it was that went on. Joseph, uh, famous Josephus, a famous uh, Jewish historian, he wrote of uh, Herod's ultimate death. He said, Herod died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. And uh, it'll be far worse for him uh, in the life to come. A horrible, horrible man and a despicable thing to do in his uh, hostility against Jesus out of a, the threat that Jesus um, posed to his very temporal reign that would be done in his lifetime. What a horrible thing to waste your eternity over. Horrible, horrible man. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream again to Joseph, honoring him as the head of the household in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was 
uh, reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. This man was, you know, hardly better in his mind. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. He didn't stay in the south, in, in the area of Jerusalem to raise Jesus Uh, And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, and he shall be called a Nazarene. And so Jesus is taken up by Joseph and Mary into Nazareth, where uh, Joseph, where Jesus is raised there uh, during his childhood. Nazareth was an interesting kind of uh, location for uh, God the Father to have his son raised Uh, later on, as we're going to see in one of the other Gospels, when one of the disciples heard, you know, Andrew hears that uh, the Messiah is here and we want you to come and, or Andrew's speaking to his brother, to come and meet um, uh, the Messiah. And the brother says, can any, in, in, in that he's come from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a, it was a military town. It was notorious for sin. And yet here is God the Father of all of the cities of the whole world that he could have had his son raised in in preparation for his public ministry. He chose Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And yet it was the perfect environment for what God had in mind for him in preparation for his public ministry. I always think about Modesto related to this. Can anything good come out of Modesto? Not according to the top ten or the top best or the top ten worst cities of America. Or what? I don't even read them anymore. I don't even read them anymore. If you don't understand the people of Modesto, then you don't understand Modesto. So I'm, I'm not going to read what you've got to say about it. But I think there can be that tendency to think, oh, if only I was you know, raised here or raised there. We're here in California. If only I was raised with in Santa Barbara or in Los Angeles or in San Francisco or one of these cosmopolitan places, why wasn't Jesus raised in Jerusalem around all that was going on there or in Joppa or any of these other kind of places? And yet he wasn't. And the fascinating thing that happens is once we go through, you know, where we've been raised and what kind of a child we've we've had and all of these different kinds of things, and sometimes there can be a lot to work through. And sometimes as a young person, you can look and say, why in the world did I grow up there? And then, and it won't make any sense to anybody until you're saved. If you've grown up in Nazareth. And then you get saved and you realize, man, I grew up exactly where I needed to grow up in just the right situation, as miserable as it was, to prepare me for what it is that God intended to do, intends to do in my life, in each of our lives. I'm talking about all of us related to that. And Nazareth was just the right place for just the right finishing touches to be put upon the Savior of the world, the fashioning of His heart, just the right exposure to sin and the right amount of understanding how heartbreaking sin is and the end of sin in a human life and to be raised within the confines of Judaism and how it was being practiced. It was just perfect. And I think that God does the same thing 
in our lives as well. Chapter 3. And in those days, John the Baptist came uh, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's important to recognize that between chapters 2 and 3, there's a gap of about uh, 28, 29 years. So we leave Jesus as a young child in chapter 2, and now he's beginning his public ministry with his water baptism uh, at the hands of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he was about six months older than Jesus. And so he has begun his public ministry. It's in uh, full swing by this point. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he and uh, this was his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The wilderness of Judea in Israel, <clears throat> every trip to Israel will take you into that region. It's kind of when you're driving out of um, Jerusalem, down toward Jericho, out toward the Dead Sea. And the further away you get, the more arid, the more barren it gets, just rocky and, and all. And down toward Jericho, down toward the region of the, of the Jordan River as it goes into the Dead Sea, it's somewhere in that area that John the Baptist was preaching this message. It was within walking distance of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so he is out there and he is calling on the whole nation of Israel to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all of this was fulfillment, as Matthew is faithful to bring out, of a prophetic, uh, of a prophecy concerning the Messiah. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, pre- prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So in those days, if a king was coming into a part of his kingdom, then a great entourage of people would go before him. You would have construction workers who would work on the roads to get them to be satisfactory for a king so he might have a smooth ride, but always as a part of this work crew to kind of spruce up the cities and the places that he would be staying and the roads that he would be traveling on. There would always be a herald. There would be someone who would be declaring all along the way, the king is coming, the king is coming, prepare yourself, the king is coming. And so it was something they were very familiar with on a physical level, and John the Baptist took it into the spiritual level. Not speaking of a physical king who is going to come, or a king that was solely related to a physical kind of realm, but he was declaring, the king is coming here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven is a person. Jesus is coming, and he's telling them, a king is going to follow me, a king is coming in history, human history, right after me, and in the same way that these people get everything all fixed up physically to prepare for a physical king, this king is coming, and the only preparation that can make you ready for this king is a spiritual preparation, and the great spiritual preparation is to repent. And he called upon the nation to repent of their sins and to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And repent means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in in life, and then that change of direction, that change of thought to result in a change of direction in terms of, of my action and of my course. And that's what he was calling them uh, to do. John himself is as a description of some of the details of John the Baptist. Uh, he was clothed in camel's hair. Uh, any of you have anything, any camel's hair, anything? Just a quick, 
I just want to, yeah. Okay, I don't know how you clean it. It's got to be harder than polyester or whatever. So pretty rough, pretty simple clothing, pretty close-to-the-earth kind of guy, kind of like a blue-jean T-shirt guy with boots, you know, today. Real simple, straightforward guy in his clothes. And not only concerning his clothes, but also he also had a, a leather belt, which, of course, what else would you wear with a, a camel hair uh, a garment and robe? And it was around his waist, and then his food was locusts and wild honey. So that's what he ate. Now, locusts and... In those days, uh, that was the uh, source of protein for poor people. And so that's what he ate. He ate locusts. And, of course, uh, many of you know today that uh, if you've traveled into the Orient especially, uh, locusts are uh, very much a staple in many countries within the world. They eat them, I tell you. I'm gonna, if, I, if God ever takes me to those places, I'm going to have so many cliff bars and power bars. I am not eating a locust. I just know it, just like I get it there and then it start like chirping and twitching its legs. And then it only get messy after that. It's interesting, though, that I was just in a doctor's office this last week and um, they had this popular science magazine. And right there within the, the thing, they were talking about preparing the United States of America, the future uh, f- sources of protein for Americans to move away from beef because of how much it takes in terms of to get the water for the grains that feed them and then how much they're expensive and all of this and so to get ready for these cricket burgers that are going to happen. And so the, the future of America is veggie burgers and, uh, and it's going to be chicken burgers, which is already happening. And uh, I know veggie burgers are happening, too. I'm blocking it out of my mind, Jennifer. I don't know how good they are. And then they're going to be cricket burgers. So if you're looking to, like, invest a little money or something like that, but it, it, it's not so far-fetched. People eat it all around the world and, and uh, even spoken of today. I like the fact that John liked his, uh, his crickets and his locusts with wild honey. Had a little bit of a sweet tooth, and I don't know why, but that just makes me feel good about it. <laughs> So everything about his clothes, everything about his food, everything about everything about his life was in line with the message. Nothing detracted from the message. Everything spoke about repenting from sin, repenting from worldliness, getting ready for the Messiah. So he wasn't sending mixed messages through his uh, his life, but he did like a little. He did like a payday bar in the middle of things. I remember I was at a at the memorial service for Bill McDonald and one of my heroes in the faith. And um, they were, uh, men were giving eulogies concerning him and the eulogies were spare in that, in that ceremony because I think that so many people would have, have loved to have shared. And uh, one of his friends was sharing concerning him and he was saying these wonderful things that were so insightful. We were all just lapping all of it up uh, completely. And then he said something like, uh, oh, Bill did have a sweet tooth. He did like his desserts. And then he said, so see, he wasn't perfect. <laughs> and uh, to know how close to perfection Bill seemed to so many of us, and that was just a cute little remark that was made. And I think everybody at the little dinner afterwards enjoyed their dessert uh, a little more uh, fully, uh, recognizing that true to be, uh, to be true of <clears throat> of. Uh, Bill McDonald. 
Notice this message that he's preaching. You say, oh, it'll never fly. I mean, you never grow a church talking like that. That's crazy. Ridiculous. Hey, when the times get as bad as they were spiritually, when Jesus began his public ministry, really rough. And so the message resonated. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. People just knew. They just knew intuitively. This is wrong. We're not ready for the Messiah. This, I'm not ready for the Messiah. And, and the Holy Spirit made that mes- message resonate with, with the people. And all Judea and all the region around the Jordan came out to him. I mean, it, it was just flooded people coming out in order to uh, heed the message and repent. And then as a sign that they had repented of their sins, uh, they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, so the religious leaders were coming out, making the walk now from Jerusalem down into the region of Jericho in order out of some kind of professional uh, curiosity for what was going on with John. The word got back to Jerusalem. There's kind of a revival going on out there. This guy's wearing camel hair clothes and a belt, and he's eating locusts and everything, and he's getting traction with the people. And again, these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were very threatened concerning their church and their little religious empire. So they decide to come and check it out. And they're not uh, being honest in, in their heart related to uh, a, a sincere interest. And so they came out to his baptism and he said to them, Brood of vipers! <laughs> this is the last time you've been called a viper. I've been called some things in life. I've been called worse than a viper, trust me. I'm called worse than a viper. But nobody talked to these guys. I mean, it'd be like going up to the Pope and saying this. I mean, you just, you just what are you doing? And I mean, they were, they were no more prepared for that. But there's a reason. John the Baptist wasn't just like spewing out things to uh, make them look bad or to publicly humiliate them. When he called them a snake, that was measured. That was deliberate. He was saying... Just like with a snake, everybody who gets close to you is in danger spiritually. You're a danger to every human being that gets within the sound of your voice or under your influence. And the Pharisees, of course, were the legalists of the day. They were the ones who added to the Word of God. The Sadducees were the liberal, theological liberal, liberals of the day who took away from the Word of God. And both of them were horribly misrepresenting the law and the prophets and God Himself. And so uh, John the Baptist confronts them concerning this. And he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, boy, when this Messiah comes, if anybody's in trouble, you guys are in trouble. But he's asking them, Are you coming because you've got a sincere fear for the responsibility that is on your head as a religious leader for what you have done to the law and the prophets? Or is this just a trip out here because you're threatened by what the Holy Spirit is doing? He went on and he said, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and calls on them to repent. It was like for them if they were in Jerusalem, for someone to call on a Pharisee or a Sadducee to repent. It was like these people were already perfect. John the Baptist is amazing. I mean, everybody has to hear this message. And I, I just, um, 
So everybody does. And sometimes people have these titles. Sometimes they're corporate this. Sometimes they're world-famous actresses and actors, and you see them in the airport, and nobody will talk to them. Nobody will say the truth to them. Nobody will, nobody will, nobody will, nobody. And here's John the Baptist who loves them enough to warn them that the message of repentance was needed for their life as much as anyone else. And he said, do not think that, and say, to say to yourself, uh, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't find comfort in the fact that we're descendants of Abraham. And John the Baptist was reminding them that Abraham was significant. The thing that made Abraham great was that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him uh, unto righteousness. And you don't need, it, it isn't enough to be a physical descendant of Abraham. You must be a spiritual descendant of Abraham as well. And they were no spiritual descendant of Abraham, only a physical blood descendant of Abraham. And, Jer- and uh, John is saying, that's not good enough. For I say to you that God is able to ri- raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, speaking of the religious systems of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, and neither of those systems were bearing good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. You've got to give John credit for telling him the truth. What people do with the truth is their own business, but they've got a right to hear the truth. And, and John told them, the Messiah is coming, and if anybody's in trouble, it's you guys. And Jesus is going to bring down this whole empire that you have, have, have built here that is not bearing the kind of fruit that God intended a relationship with him uh, to bear. And, uh, and it's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water. And uh, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than me. Uh, than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit uh, and with fire. And uh, so those that listen to the message of repentance and and heed that and repent of their sins, uh, they would, upon the coming of the Messiah, receive the Holy Spirit. Those who rejected the message of John the Baptist, then judgment would occur. And if they rejected then the call of Jesus to repent, then all there would be is, is ultimately uh, eternal judgment. As he speaks now in verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand, <clears throat> and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn, but he shall burn up the chaff with unquenchable uh, quenchable fire. And then the baptism of Jesus here. When Jesus came, <clears throat> excuse me, from Galilee... Uh, to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Isn't this interesting? John, Jesus walks the 60 miles from Nazareth in the north to come down to that Judean wilderness to stand in line with everybody else and to be water baptized. And it's like when he gets to the front of the line here, John recognizes him for who he is, but nobody else knows him for who he is. You never know who you're in line with. Wouldn't that be something to find? Here you are, Jesus is right in front of you, and you're just talking about Golden State Warriors or something, or some goofy thing when you've got the Messiah right there. But fascinating, Jesus walks all of that distance in order to be baptized 
by uh, John the Baptist. And when he comes to the front of the line, John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. I mean, put yourself in John's shoes. How uncomfortable was wrong with this picture? Listen, you're here and you ought to be baptizing and, and I ought to be getting baptized by you, not the other way around. I remember the first time I was at a conference one time and I am teaching a, a pastor's conference and I'm teaching at that pastor's conference and Chuck Smith is sitting in the front row. And I'm thinking to myself, the whole sermon, what am I doing up here when that guy's sitting right there and he really has something to say? Well, on a level of infinity, this is what John the Baptist is feeling in all of this. I'm, I'm not as great as you. I, I don't possess your holiness. You should baptize me. And Jesus answered, and he said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so the, and Jesus comes and he gets water baptized. And the water baptism of the people, the reason joy, Jesus comes into this whole scene, all these people are being water baptized. And their water baptism represented their hunger for righteousness. And so Jesus comes into this scene of a hunger of, of people for righteousness and his water baptism represented his commitment to provide that righteousness to them at whatever the cost to himself. And when John hears this, he allowed uh, uh, the baptizing of Jesus. And when he, had be- when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, upon as a baptism of the Holy Spirit word coming upon him. Jesus is beginning his public ministry. This is the power in order uh, to do all that he's going to do for the next three and a half years of his public ministry. And then if this dramatic... Um, involvement and witness of the Holy Spirit wasn't enough, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so God the Father and the Holy Spirit at the scene of Jesus' water baptism, they both chime in in their own way. And it was their way of communicating, not only to the people that were there at that water baptism, but to all human beings throughout all of human history that everything that this man is about to say and everything that this man is about to do, we are behind it 100%. He is representing the fullness of the Godhead in his ministry. And so Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all present, which is a problem for one, uh, the oneness teaching today or oneness Pentecostalism that teaches, yes, there are three, there is a Godhead made up of three persons, but that, that, uh, that, that the, the Godhead is only represented at any given time by one person. And so, uh, you know, it's being represented through Jesus right now. Well, here you see uh, the Godhead fully represented. You've got Jesus at this scene. You have the Holy Spirit at this scene. And you have the Father at this scene, unless Jesus is an amazing ventriloquist. And, and he's not. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. They are one God, three persons, all of them manifesting themselves 
on this scene of Jesus' water baptism. So if you ever, somebody tries to pull you into oneness doctrine or something like this, this is a great passage to say, I can't get my head around that because at Jesus' water baptism, everybody was there and everybody seemed to be having a pretty good time. And uh, so I don't see any reason to break up what they seem to be enjoying. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for this Bible. Thank you for the miracle of your word. Thank you so much for these details of the life of our Savior. And how as we read these things, Lord, we would not be tempted in any way. And certainly we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our life for it. But how we would never ever want to tinker with Jesus or to believe that he could be improved upon in any way for who he is and what he came into the world to do. And we thank you, Lord, tonight that you have provided the world, but you have provided us personally and individually with a Savior who was a perfect match for every need that we had and that we have. And we bless you for him tonight, Lord, and that you are pleased in him and that we have the blessing of hearing your voice through him and through his life. And we give you praise for him tonight, Father. We bless your heart for him in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel, would you close us?